Hello, and welcome to this Solus Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solaschurch.com. The book of Nahum. The book of Nahum. Number seven in our list of minor prophets. And to just get right into it here, we've been starting each Bible study now. You know this is our routine. With the Minor Prophets, we want to give some overview of what we're looking at. This is not the normal way, not the traditional way that we study Scripture. Usually we pick a book, pray about it, find a book, and we kind of go through it verse by verse. Uh, But here in this series, doing something a little bit different, we're looking at uh, these whole books um, in whole weekends. So we're taking a whole Sunday to look at a different book each week. And so we want to start with some overview, okay? We want some context. We want to know what's going on in the book of Nahum. Some 30,000 feet above, which, which is what we'll look at with our prophet profile. And then that's going to lead us to a segue to look at some application, asking what is the major message. So, um, you know, as followers of Jesus, we want to stay away from two dangers. One is where it's like all heart, all inspiration, but it's void of truth. It's void of God's word. It's void of context. It's void of, of knowing truth. But there's this other error that we want to avoid, and that's where you just know things but there's no heart. It's been called big head, tiny heart syndrome, where it's just all these things you know about God, but we want to allow those things to really permeate our our souls, and we want to ask God not just to teach us what Nahum's about, but then we'll go to asking God, what does it mean for me in my life right now, right here at this moment? So a little roadmap for where we're headed. We'll start with our context, and we get that from what we're calling our prophet Profile, prophet profile. Remember, the Bible is not simply a book. The Bible is a library of books, 66 books to be exact. Uh, 66 books written by uh, over 40 different authors over a period of roughly 1,500 years in multiple languages uh, and with different literary styles. It's important to know this when we approach the Bible. We are, impro- uh, we are approaching a library of Hebrew and Greek and, and Aramaic literature. Um, and it's all ultimately sh- leading us to the person of Jesus. But there's again, there's different ways that it does that. There's different literary styles. Some books in the Bible are narrative in nature. They're telling historical accounts. They're telling stories, true stories of history. In fact, that's actually, I don't know if you know this, but that's a majority. Majority of scripture is narrative. Think of the first verse in the whole Bible. How does it begin? In the beginning. It's like you open this thing up and you're, you're ready. You're strapping in for an exciting story of history. So m- much of the, of the Bible is narrative. It's also poetry. I love some good poetry, some music. Uh, the idea there is it kind of gives some color and it, and, it, and it gives some nuance to some of the black and white things uh, that we study. There's poetry. There are letters. There's discourse. There's teaching. Um, And then there is this unique section of scripture that we call the prophets, the prophets. And these are, there's there's 17 of them in the Old Testament. And these books, they represent um, this special ministry that God gave to a few men and women to relay God's message to his people. It's the way that God would speak to his people. First Peter tells us is that they, they, they didn't preach through their own will. But they were moved by God's Holy Spirit, and they spoke his word. This is what a prophet was in Israel's history. We've been saying this each week. They weren't these guys that 
that looked on at culture and they had a perspective to give. They had an insight. And so they kind of were seeing something and said, okay, I, I see this about that, right? I'm going to speak into that. No, that's not what these men were. These are men whom God fully anointed and appointed. He grabbed their lives and he led them to be fully abandoned to what God wanted to say. That, that's what these men were. In fact, it cost some of them their lives. It cost most, if not all of them, their comfort. But that was the, the cost of the calling that God put on their lives, to be prophets, to be those that just say, God, I'm going to say what you want me to say, regardless of how people feel about it, regardless, knowing that ultimately you're a God of love, and that's why you speak the truth. So that's a prophet. You have these minor prophets that, that we're specifically looking at. And just to kind of give a profile of this prophet this morning, we're looking at these four key questions. And when you get to the book of Nahum, which is just the, the record, the, the writing of this prophet's ministry, we want to ask, this is what we've been asking each week as we open up these books, what is the title of the book? What do we know about the author? What's the territory that they're ministering? What's the time frame that their ministry took place in? And then ultimately, what was their task that God gave them to fulfill? So we'll look at this, and then we'll get to how it applies to us. So let's start here with the title. You can see it there. If you look at your Bibles, and we're going to be uh, flipping a bit here. Um, and actually, at least in my Bible, it works out nicely because it's just I open it up, and it's two pages, the whole book right here. So I have it before me here. We're going to kind of go through the book a little bit. But if you just look at verse 1 to start, you see that... The author is described there in the first verse. It says that this is the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. So that's what the book of Nahum is. Pretty simply, it's the book of the vision. So that's another way that God's word would come to a prophet. Sometimes it just says that the word of the Lord came to this person. But here with this, uh, this hombre Nahum, it says he got a vision. So this is the book of the vision of a guy named Nahum the Elkishite. Here's what we know about Nahum. Not very much. Uh, we only know what's actually posted here for us. Um, he's an Elkishite. Now, that would help us if we knew where an Elkishite resides. There's no record today of where Elkosh or Akashi or Akashville is. We have no idea. Um, there's some speculation that this prophet Nahum could be from the region of Galilee because there is a a uh, very prominent town in Galilee that we read about all throughout the Bible called Capernaum. Capernaum. Now, I didn't realize that, it, I always say it as Capernaum, but that, that name literally means the town of Nahum. It's kind of, that kind of tells us, I think, okay? But now, some think, people think maybe they named it after him, you know? Um, I don't know. I'm hoping one day Boca changes to Caper Andrew. We'll see. We'll ne we never know. Um, Anyway, um, Nahum, potentially from Galilee, we know his name means comforter. His name means comforter. It's a nickname or a shortened version. Does anybody know of, of what other name? Nehemiah. So Nehemiah, same name. And it's interesting, we read there he had a burden, just like Nehemiah, both Nahum and Nehemiah, their name means comforter, and they each had a heavy task from the Lord. And this is usually how it should go. Um, it's, it never works out well when God puts heavy things upon like grumpy, angry people. So, so God seems usually to put the most heavy, hard, difficult things. He often likes to place those burdens upon soft-hearted people. 
Uh, there's something about that combination. I think of the Apostle John, who is the Apostle of Love, and he was the one to which God gave the Revelation, which you read the book of Revelation, which is our, our New Testament prophet book, um, and you have a guy speaking hard truths with a soft heart. Uh, Christians, we are not effective when we speak hard truths with hard hearts. We are mu- and we're also not effective when we speak soft truths with soft hearts. I want to say that too. We are very effective when we're able to speak hard truths with loving and soft hearts. Amen? We've seen the danger that either of those can bring. Nahum, this guy, comforter. Uh, here's what we know. He has a ministry to, remember this town? Remember these people? The Ninevites, that's his territory. Uh, it tells us there in verse 1, the burden against Nineveh. Nineveh, that's the, the, the place in which he is sent. Oh, I forgot to mention this. I think this is worth saying before we talk about Nineveh. Notice there in verse 1, it tells us that this is the book of the vision of Nahum. It's kind of interesting to, to notice that detail because um, this is the only prophet who actually refers to his writings as a book. And many people speculate that Nahum uh, potentially didn't even have an oral ministry, but potentially just a written ministry, uh, which is really interesting to think of, right? Because I think we tend to reduce the people that God uses often to like the loudest in the room, who talks the most, who steps forward the most. But can I just say, like, God loves to use writing. Can I say today, America, the church needs writers? People who are willing not just, maybe you're not the one to like step up and you don't really have a loud voice in the public airwaves, but some of you guys, I know, I follow you, okay? You have a writing gift, all right? And you have a way to to communicate God's word maybe in more of a written form. So Nahum is likely more of an author than a preacher, which we're reminded that there are many different ways that God communicates his gospel. It's not only and always just through a guy with a microphone, okay? I still matter, okay? But you you know what I'm saying, right? There's so many different ways that God can communicate his heart. So Nahum, that's pretty cool. I just like that fun fact. Let's move on from the fun facts, okay? Um, Nineveh, that's where God sends him to. That's what his, or rather, we don't know if he was necessarily sent there, but that's where his ministry is to. Some people think that he's writing this even to Judah, all right? But it's concerning, notice there verse 1, it's the burden against Nineveh. You got to see that there, the burden, or the word burden there means heavy word, the heavy message against Nineveh. That's his territory. Where is Nineveh? Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. Um, And as we studied in the book of Jonah, remember Jonah is sent there. That's going to be a big part of our study today. When Jonah, the guy that got eaten by the fish that the Lord prepared, that guy, when he was sent there, we, we looked at in the book of Jonah sort of the historic record and reputation of the Ninevites that Nahum is writing to, that Jonah was sent to. They were a historically, here's the Ninevites, here's the reputation, a historically gruesome and wicked people. Just, there's no other way to say it. I was contemplating whether or not I needed to read the description of the disgusting things that they did, and I was like, let's lighten it up a little bit today. Okay, you're welcome, all right? So you can go back to Jonah, and you can read the description of how wicked and gruesome these people were in their battle tactics and their war strategies, just as a nation, they were not only those that would oppress and 
and um, just destroy the vulnerable and, and um, other nations, but they would revel in it. So these were just wicked, evil people. I think if you get back, go back to the, the Jonah teaching, you'll see the correlation we made is they're like, a, we would say, like a modern-day ISIS in a lot of ways. Like thinking back to that kind of evil that we, we all, in some ways, when those stories were breaking, you were just like, that's, that's in the world. Wow, that's evil. That's wicked. Well, that's, that's Nineveh. Now, the time frame of this book is really important, especially as it pertains to the book of Jonah. It's likely 660-ish B.C. That's what many scholars say. All right, 660-ish. Roughly, listen to this, 100 years, 100 years after Jonah's ministry, which led to the greatest revival in human history. So let's back up for a second. 100 years prior to the book of Nahum, God tells Jonah, Jonah, remember this? Arise and go to your national enemy, Nineveh. You remember this story? The reason why Jonah didn't do what God called him to do, the reason why he ran in the opposite direction is because Assyria, the Ninevites, they were Israel's national enemy. We read about in 2 Kings how God even used Jonah to fortify Israel's defense against other nations and spread their political power. And so God uses Jonah to defend his nation, and then God sends Jonah to be a prophet to this wicked and evil enemy. And Jonah says no, and he runs, and he's reluctant to go. Certainly we know fear was probably involved. He had read about what they did to their enemies, and he's like, I don't want to be one of those people who die like that, okay? But he also, we know, ultimately doesn't go because he doesn't want to see God forgive and love his enemies. And there's a little bit of Jonah in all of us, right? God, I don't want to see you love my enemies, all right? I want to see you judge my enemies. But God, after getting Jonah's attention in some creative ways, God does bring Jonah to the point where Jonah preaches an eight-word sermon to Nineveh, 100 years prior. Jonah goes. He finally goes. He preaches God's word to this really gruesome, wicked, vile people, and they all repent and turn to God. And Jonah's message was, you guys are going to, pretty much it was this, you guys are going to be judged by God for your wickedness. That was his three-point sermon right there. I mean, that's what he had to say. And roughly, scholars estimate, potentially one million people residing in the city at the time turned to the Lord. They, they turned to the Lord. We're talking about, and this is what we've said, the greatest revival in human history. It's amazing. It's amazing. It reminds you that God can save anyone. And he usually saves those that we count off as unsavable, and, and God rescues them. And so you have, listen, the greatest revival in history, this is amazing, a hundred uh, or a million people that turn to the Lord. They turn away from their sin, and they say, God, I'm going to trust in you. And God shows grace and mercy to them. And Jonah gets really frustrated about it and goes and has a temper tantrum outside the city, right? But they're forgiven, and they are revived by the Spirit of God. Now, listen. Nahum, well, now he's writing to these people 100 years later. It's been 100 years since that nation repented, and now it seems, it's pretty clear, 100 years later, notice this, in a generation, what was revival is now rebellion. 100 years have passed, and the nation has completely reverted back to their wicked and vile ways of cruelty and sinfulness. That's what's going on here in 660-ish B.C. 
a complete backslide of a nation. A nation that was once walking with God, receiving his grace, is now we're going to see back into their sin, opposing God, ready to receive his judgment. You get the nature of how wicked they are. I mean, the way that God feels about them at this point, they're not the repentant Ninevites of Jonah. Look at Nahum 1.14. There's this simple four-word phrase that, that is just like, is rough and heavy, and what God says about them, he says, for you are vile. That's what he says to them. It's like, God is love, and he's kind, and he, you know, he's, he's just always like turning in the other cheek, and he says to the people in Nahum, he's, uh, Nahum says to the Ninevites, you're vile. Like, it's like, whoa. Whoa, that's offensive, right? Like, that's some heavy truth. Now, look at the nature of them. Uh, look at chapter 3. I just want you to see a little bit more where they're at. Uh, sort of the wickedness that they reverted to. Look at this description in Nahum chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to the bloody city. That's what he calls them. It's interesting, right? You have the sunshine state. You got the big apple. You got the windy city. And then you got the bloody city, okay? It's like, where are you going? Oh, we're transplanting. Got a new job in the bloody city. It's going to be great. Little family friendly, great parks. It's all full of lies and robbery, is what, is what Nahum says. Look at the nature of the city. Verse 1, its victim never departs. In other words, they're always oppressing people. This is how wicked this nation is. No, notice the description here in verse 2. The noise of a whip and the noise of rattling wheels, of galloping horses, of clattering chariots. Now, this is just beautiful Hebrew poetry here, describing how gruesome and ruthless the Ninevites would be in battle. Horsemen charged with bright sword and glittering spear. There is a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. Notice this. They stumble over the corpses. So, so this just gives you the picture of how just jacked up these dudes are hanging out in the bloody city. Now, this leads us to the task of this book. Um, I promise the air will get let out of the room in a little bit, and we'll, we'll see who Jesus is and how good God is and how loving he is, but we've got to really set the stage here. It's important to sort of sit under the weight of this event in history. Um, we have the time frame there, 100 years after, completely backslidden nation, wicked and vile, and that leads us to Nahum's task, which was to pronounce God's righteous and wrathful judgment on the nation of Nineveh for their vile wickedness towards the world, those whom God has made in his image, people, and their rebellion, sinful rebellion against the Lord. That's what the book of Nahum really covers. God sees their wickedness, and here is what he has to say about them. Here's what God has to say to them as a righteous and holy judge. Um, he says to them five words that none of us ever want to hear God say to us. It's Nahum chapter 2, look at verse 13. Behold, I am against you. He, he actually, not, I mean, it's the worst thing to ever hear God say to you, but imagine if he says it twice. Chapter 3, verse 5, behold, in case you didn't hear me the first time, I just want to make it clear. Imagine God saying this to you. Behold, how's it going? I'm against you. It's like, all right, I want some of that. Let's, you know, let's pray. You know, it's like, whoa, that, that's, that's heavy stuff. The God of the universe being against me? Isn't there a promise in the New Testament that says this? It says, if God is for you, what? Who can be against you, right? I mean, if God is for you, 
That's what we all, don't we all desperately need that in life? Like at the end of the day, here's the thing that matters most in your life. It's not just who's president. It's is God for or against you? Because if God is for you, man, nobody, nothing can be against you because nothing can be against God. But if God is against you, who can be for you? Right? Like if God is your opponent, like, and so that's what Nahum is describing us about the nation, the Assyrians, the Ninevites. They are the opponents of God. They are, God is against them because they are against him and against his purposes and against his people. And so God is going to bring his righteous and wrathful and certain judgment upon the nation. Go back to verse 1. I want, you, I want us to read about this. Um, I knew this would be a big part of the Minor Prophets and just such a general tone to Sunday mornings. was like, hey guys, let's be reminded that God is a God of righteous judgment. And this is heavy, helpful truth. It says there in verse 2, notice this verse, Nahum 1, now we're in verse 2 of chapter 1. God is jealous and the Lord avenges. Now we know when God is jealous, he's not jealous like we're jealous, like he doesn't have something and he needs something he doesn't have. It's that which speaks over his heart for his people. He knows what's best for them. He knows what's best for his world that he created. And so when it wanders away from his attention, his heart is longing and wanting it to be back where it best belongs. So he's jealous and he avenges his people. He doesn't take revenge and attack, but he avenges injustice, those that have attacked his people. Notice this, the Lord avenges, now this is just good old like character of God 101, and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. So again, theology 101, this is the nature of God. He is righteous, he is just, and he is not a pushover. Now, this is the only reason why this is offensive, I think, naturally to the human heart. Well, the only reason, there's probably thousands of reasons why that's offensive. But a big reason is because none of us want to think of God that way toward us, right? Like, we don't want a God that's angry. And what does it say there? Furious. Like, God, I just really would, would hope and pray that you never get furious at me. Like, I get furious at me. Like, once in my, our, my whole marriage, Brittany got furious at me. Um, like, my, like, God, I imagine that you, if you, you know, you could be furious with me at times. You ever felt like that? Like, if I was God, I'd be mad at me, you know? And so, so this is like, we don't want this. And this is kind of a, this is tough. Like, we don't like to think of a God who reserves wrath for his enemies. Again, because we're thinking selfishly, I don't ever want to be that. But when we do see evil in its worst form before us in someone else, it's a lot easier, isn't it? Like, when you explore and you discover how evil has permeated humanity, and you discover things that people are doing, and you could just bring up and get into a little bit about the, the multi-billion dollar industry of human trafficking, and, and you pray, you're like, God, bring justice. God, you're holy, therefore be wrathful against evil. Isn't it interesting how it's a lot easier to imagine it somewhere else, but here's what we're trying to get at. We're talking about the character and the nature of God. This is just who, it's not about us. and what, well, This is who God is. He's righteous. He's just. He's who you want as the judge. Now, not necessarily for our own lives, if we're trying to measure up before him, 
but as the one who ultimately, listen, who ultimately sees everything. Um, we need to labor for our courts to bring justice in our nation, to bring voice, to be a voice for those that don't have one, for the oppressed, whether it's from the unborn to any other people group in our nation. We need to labor for justice, but we labor resting knowing that God sees all. Knowing that at the end of the day, we're not the judges. We can commit that to God. We know, God, you're going to bring justice because you're righteous. He's righteous. It's a faithful characteristic that he has. Now, I want you to notice, though, verse 3. So God's just bringing this justice upon the nation. I think we tend to think about God bringing this justice, and we're like, God, like, calm down. You know? like, God, like, peace and love, God. You know, like, come on. Get, isn't that another one of your things, you know? Like, so, so we kind of think of God maybe as, like, overreacting because we can project, like, our judgment upon God. Because I don't know about you, but the way that I often get furious and the way that I often bring out, have outbursts of wrath is, like, someone wrongs me. And it's usually not like I'm fine, enjoying my day, listening to my music, you know, and, like, I just feel like bringing wrath upon someone. Like, who can I bring wrath down upon today, you know? Like, usually, it's like you've wronged me, and so I respond, right? I'm, like, angry. Now, notice what he says about God's justice, verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger. It's important. When it comes to God's righteousness and his judgment, he's not just like, oh, you made me angry. Like we're talking, remember 100 years prior? God very well should have and could have judged the nation. But he's patient. This is definitely a picture here of the gospel message that God, he certainly has not given us what our sins deserve. Not one of us. Do we know this? This will make you very thankful for grace when you just sit on this. God is slow to anger. He's a lot less mad at you than you think he is. He's a lot more patient than you think he is. He has not treated us the way that our sins deserve us to be treated. He's been gracious to us. He's been kind to us. Just humanity as a whole, our nation, us as individuals. So it's important to see God's justice and judgment in this way. Because this is how it's coming upon the Ninevites. It's coming with great power and with great force. As the Lord is... finally executing what he's reserved, his wrath. Now, here's some interesting stuff about this. Uh, I want you to see as God is um, against this nation, bringing his judgment and his justice, uh, Nahum gives this real, these real precise, predictive prophecies about how God is going to judge Nineveh. I promise you the class is almost over. We're going to get into some other stuff. Just hang on with me. We're almost there, okay? Keep engaging here. All right, Jonah, or, or Nahum is going to give these really predictive prophecies that are really interesting about uh, the Ninevites. Uh, the first thing that he prophesies about the Ninevites who have now rebelled against God and are his enemies, God is against them, he's going to judge them, is in, in verse 8 of chapter 1, we see Nahum prophesies that, that Nineveh is going to fall through, it says, an overflowing flood. You see that there in verse 8? He says, but with an overflowing flood... He will make an utter end of its place. This is what God says about the nation. They're going to be an utter end. They're going to be destroyed. They're no longer going to exist. And it's going to come about through an overflowing flood, which is really interesting because uh, Greek scholars tell us, as they've studied this stuff, what you have in the nation of Nineveh historically is you have documented that before Babylon and Persia and the Medes actually came and overthrew Nineveh, because what God says is going to happen, happens every time, okay? Before that happened, 
Um, the Tigris River, which used to run through Nineveh, it overflowed, and it took out a whole section of their fortifying walls. That, that was their main defense, was the security of their walls. And through that overflowing river, it, it knocked down the whole wall, and that's what led to the enemies overtaking the city. And that's what Nahum said less than 100 years prior. So that's pretty interesting, number one, is, is that Nahum prophesied that that would happen. The second thing that's interesting, if you look in chapter 3, uh, verse 11, he says, the first verse is, is I don't know. You're, he says, you're also going to be drunk. So... I don't know what else to say about that. Next verse says this, though. He says, you will, notice this, you will be hidden. So God is talking about their destruction, and then Nahum prophesies, not only are you going to be uh, overthrown, but after you're overthrown, he says, I'm going to wipe out your name, and I'm going to wipe out the evidence of your existence, and he says, you're going to be hidden. Now, that's a bold thing to promise and prophesy. Not only, imagine saying to a nation, hey, you're going to be overthrown by the enemy, but not only that, but you're going to be wiped off of the radar. No one's going to know you existed for, uh, or where you even existed for maybe thousands of years. And guess what? That was true. For 2,400 years. Did you know this? There was no evidence of the history of, uh, of the nation of Nineveh. Um, and a lot of people, they do this with the Bible. They're like, oh, we haven't found that. It doesn't exist. And I love how archaeology just continues to prove God's word, right? And so you have in 1842... You have the uncovering of Nineveh through an excavation project. And so it was discovered, God's word is true, Nineveh really did exist. This is not just fairy tales, this is true history. And you have a nation that God said would be hidden, that was hidden for 2,400 years. So just fun stuff about Nineveh on a Sunday morning. Are you enjoying it? I am. I'm a nerd. This is fun. So then you get to the book of, of Nahum, and I would encourage you to uh, have some fun reading through it this week. Maybe we've been encouraging you taking these books and kind of reading through them. And what you're going to find is this general outline. Here's, here's an outline of the book of Nahum as you read it this week when it comes to the judgment that God brought on this nation. Chapter 1 is generally God's judgment declared. His character, their sin, and then God's justice in light of that. It's judgment declared upon the nation. Chapter 2 is where judgment is described. You have this real poetic language describing how God is coming up against them. That's chapter 2. It's uh, really, the book of Nahum is like, it's these Hebrew doom poems that Nahum writes about the end of this nation. Judgment declared, chapter 2, judgment described. And then chapter 3, you get that reference there to the bloody city. Wonderful place that uh, you, you have judgment deserved. So that is what's going on in the book of Nahum. A couple weeks ago, I made a joke at this point. I said, okay, let's close in prayer. And that was a joke. I'm not going to do that again. I was tempted to, all right? But the point I'm trying to make is leading us to probably just verbalize what we're all feeling right now, which is, okay? Right? Okay. <laughs> right? Like, all right, that's something that happened. Okay, God is jealous. And now this is, is what I, I'm trying to get us to, to, to now zero in on as we think about this. Uh, one thing that we've wanted to do each week is we wanted to ask this question ultimately, what is the message? I mean, really, though. Like, what is the major message for your life and my life when we look at a book filled with such heavy judgment? Is the major message, don't be God's enemy? Like, I mean, yeah, that's, that would be a good one, right? You could jot that down as like a little sub point. Um, is the message, don't mess with God's people? Is the message, don't be a bloody city, don't be wicked, don't be vile? 
Uh, certainly, there's a lot of applications that you can draw. But I want, what I want to zero in on is what was most fascinating to me. Uh, the major message that I want to focus on from this book that I want us to think about in our own lives today is what I'll call the absent nature of God's generational purpose. The absent nature of God's generational purpose. I don't know about you, but when I look at this story, all I can think about is what happened. How do you go from one million people following hard after the Lord to experiencing God's grace in their lives to a hundred years later, not a single follower of the Lord? How do you get such a massive reversion from one generation being repentant to another generation being so outright rebellious and wicked? You have this absence in this story, from this book, in the history of Nineveh, you have an absence, listen, of the spiritual heritage of one generation not continuing to the next. The absent nature of God's generational purpose. The point I'm trying to make here is that it is God's purpose. It's God's intention in every generation within which he moves mightily. He delights and he desires for that generation to continue the legacy. To carry on that heritage of faith from one generation to the next. For it to, to pass on. And when I use the phrase generation, what am I trying to get out here? I'm not just trying to get out like age groups. You know, like are you Gen Z, Gen X, Millennial, Boomer? What's up? Where you at? All right? That's not what we're trying to get at here. Certainly that can, can mean what a generation is. Um, one thing I love about our church is I, I, feel, I feel very thankful for the multi-generational community of our church. Are you thankful for that? I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for the zeal that we have. We have so many different stages uh, and ages of life. I think it's a really sweet thing. But when I'm using the term generation, when I talk about God's generational purpose, when you think about the generation of Nineveh at the time of Jonah, oftentimes that phrase in Scripture can also mean uh, simply this. Understand it this way. It's the people living at the same time. Really simple, right? It's the people who are alive at that moment in history and have all together experienced the goodness of who God is and what he has done. Case in point, Nineveh 100 years prior. Another example of this is the people of God under the leadership of Joshua. I love that example. You have Joshua who leads God's people and sees God do marvelous, incredible things. They each, all these people, they have their own testimonies of what God has done. And here's an interesting scripture in Judges chapter 2 that describe this very similar fallout from one generation to the next. You go from the book of Joshua, God's doing amazing things among his people. You get into the book of Judges, and here's what it says. It says, when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, a.k.a. they died, okay? And we can think also uh, how this applies to Nineveh. All that generation that watched God do what he did, it also happened in Israel's history at one point. It says they had all passed away and another generation arose. And typically it's 100 years actually in scripture. That's often the max on that. It's like a 100 year period just like Nineveh. Another generation arose after them, notice this, who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. God's character and his greatness, all that he has done, it died with the generation that experienced it. 
and it wasn't passed on, that heritage wasn't passed on to the one to come. Now, again, this is God's heart, certainly for his people. I love Deuteronomy 6. This is where God says to his people about this generational mandate. He says, and these words which I command to you, they shall be in your heart. This was always God's design for his people to pass on that, that heritage of faith. And he says, and you shall teach my words diligently to your children. The next generation that's coming up, you got to be intentional about this. Teach them diligently, and you shall talk of them. Notice this, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Now, this could be, you know, even used in, in kind of like um, segmented to create even a strategy in your parenting for how you are transferring your heritage of faith to them. Uh, you could get really practical and say, okay, when you sit in your house, so that's when you're at the dinner table. We're talking about the Lord. When you walk by the way, so back then they didn't have Honda Odyssey minivans, okay? Disciples would for sure be in that, wouldn't they? Packed out, but they didn't, all right? So that, that could be when you're going to school in the morning. That's like some of the best Devo time with the kids, all right? When you lie down before bed, you, you, you know, say your Nawi Lamies. Nawi Lamies? Say your Nawi Lamies. But, but, but ask, how was your day today? How did, how did you, did you see God in your day today? Did you, anything remind you of God? And then notice this, and when you rise up, good morning, first thing in the morning. Now, you could, you could strategize this, but this is also poetic. It's, it's, it's descriptive, but it's also to say as you go about your life, what God has done in your life is not just for you, and we are selfish to hold it to ourselves. God's intent, his purpose, is that what he does in one generation, his heart, is that it wouldn't be missed by the next. That it would be passed on intentionally. That one generation would fight for the spiritual heritage of the next. I just got to give you more Bible verses about this because it's such a cool concept. I love it in Psalm 78. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. So you see the generational effect? So our fathers have taught us about the Lord. We have grown up with a spiritual legacy. I'm just curious, how many of you guys today, your spiritual life is the result of that being passed on to you from a prior generation? Anybody? Okay, me? For sure. So the, the Lord teaches us through those who have gone before us. And I love this declaration. And we will not hide them from our children. What God has transferred to me from my fathers, we're going to pass on to our children, telling the generation to come the praises of the Lord, his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob that speaks to God's work right, what he's done, and he appointed a law in Israel that speaks to God's holiness and his character, and he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children. Now, it's interesting. Those two things are the two things that Judges says weren't passed on to the next gen. They didn't know the Lord, his character, nor what he had done for Israel. So you see this accepting that, that the generation to come might know them, that the children that would be born, they may arise and declare them to their children, to their children, and to their children. That they may set, here's the hope, that they may set their hope in God. See, hope is at stake here, isn't it? We're passing on not just ideas and stories, we're passing on substantial hope in a world that doesn't have any. The legacy of that. And not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. I love Psalm 145. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another, and shall declare your mighty 
act. So we get the idea here, don't we? God desires that what he does in one generation, it is fought for and transferred from one generation unto the next. And that is what the book of Nahum tragically, tragically communicates. It's the absent nature of this purpose. How do you go from one million people knowing the Lord to zero? How does that happen in a hundred years? Now, to drive this home a little bit, I just want to say this is extremely applicable to our American spiritual heritage at this moment in time. Even if you're like, well, I don't have kids, Andrew. I have a, I have a golden retriever. I have a, you know, I have a cat. Like, what? You're going, that doesn't really apply. Um, hey, guys. We're a part of the same generation. Um, and there is, by many statistics, a generation that is rising up right now that is largely more and more growing up not knowing the Lord. The biggest fear I have is not just what happens politically in our nation, but it's what potentially will happen spiritually in our nation, where our generation dies as the last followers of Jesus. And the reason why I would speculate this and be concerned for this is there's a lot of evidence towards this. Uh, this is uh, some of the most recent stuff, the state of the church in 2020. This is by Barna. There's kind of like top of the line when it comes to surveys. Hundreds of thousands of people that they ask a lot of these good questions to. And the most recent survey they did here, and, and I just want to say this is pre-COVID. There's a whole nother uh, versions of this when you see what... Um, the lack of gathering on Sunday has done for the church as a whole, especially the younger generation. But this is just so, if this is pre-COVID, we need to really uh, take heed to this, right? Um, but you have, notice this, you have uh, three categories. I know that's a lot to look at. You're like, okay, cool graph, nice lines, all right? So, so you, have a, you have a red, a blue, and this mustard color, I guess you could call it, all right? Um, uh, you, you have, the, the, this, this mustard color is just non-Christian, Non-Christian. So this represents the category of, of the, the most rising right now, the, the, the category of faith in the U.S. that's, that's um, growing the most out of any other one. The most conversions is happening to this category of nuns. Have you heard of this? Nuns. I don't mean like Catholic nuns, okay? Uh, I mean I don't have any religious affiliation whatsoever. None. So that's in that category. That's also agnostic and atheist uh, belief. Okay. So that's as you see there, it's on a steady climb. Uh, this blue one is non-practicing Christian. So this is someone who says that they're a, a Christian, but um, the difference between a non-practicing and a practicing Christian. Here, let me help you. Here's what a practicing Christian represents. It's someone who identifies as a Christian and strongly agrees that faith is important to their lives. Step one pretty important to be a practicing Christian. You got to think it's important, okay? And they have attended church within the past month, okay? Um, some of y'all need to be like, am I a practicing Christian? Okay. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Little joke, half joke. Um, but you get the idea, right? Another, another big characteristic of the decline of this is a lack of, if the, one of the questions was, have you, have you prayed this week? And, and the decline in practicing Christians, someone who says, no, I haven't prayed this week. Um, have you read your Bible this month? No. So we're, we're talking about like following Jesus. And so that's what I'm trying to get at. Like, well, what does it mean? It's like, I'm not trying to get legalistic, but it's just simple, right? It's like, well, can I go to church? Can I not go to church and be a Christian? It's like, I mean, can you follow Jesus and not do what he said? 
I mean, that's what we're talking about here, right? We're talking about doing what he called us to do, reading, being in his word, being in his presence, being in his, uh, with his people. And, and so notice this. We have, um, we have a, a great moment here in 2000. 45% of our nation is going to church, reading their Bible. They're following the Lord. They're identifying as Christian. Uh, you have this rise. A lot of this is through what happens on 9-11. You see that little tick there? in 2001, and you see this kind of steady climb. This is like the boom of the mega church also, okay, bring a lot of people in. 2009, 2010, um, there, there's, there's this big decline you start to see happen. I'm not, I don't, I'm not a missiologist. Um, it's, it's ironic that that's also the time that a lot of these mega church scandals started to break, so that was a, a big thing there. He built a lot of these churches around men, so if they fall, we fall, not a good model. Um, but notice the decline that you start to see to where you go to 2020 and you have 25% of our nation now being practicing Christians. And that's not on an increase. That's not steady. That's not steadily staying the same thing. That's on a continued decline. The idea there is that um, the share of practicing Christians in our country has, has nearly dropped in half since 2000. And you don't need a chart to know this, right? Like, I don't know about you, but I, like lately, the thing that I've been stuck on, just having a hard time with, is like how lonely it's been getting to follow Jesus. Anybody been feeling that? Am I the only one? Okay. Like, I'm looking around, I'm like, where are those friends I started following Jesus with? And, and what you have is you have this steady trend and this pace of a generation that's rising up that for a variety of reasons... Certainly, there's spiritual reasons behind that. Um, I want to submit to you, it's, it's, it's not the government. It's the church. Um, the reason why another generation arose in Israel's history that didn't know the Lord and know what he did for Israel is because God's people didn't fight for them to know. They made church, they made Christianity about them and their comfort. They made it about their security. In fact, they didn't even make it a central thing. They made it a peripheral thing. And so it's been said, like what one generation tolerates, the next generation celebrates. And so if we deviate this way, what, it's just going to continue to go in that trajectory. Um, and that's what we see. But here's what I want to remind us. Okay, so we're thinking, we're talking a lot about Israel. Part, some of us are like, what, what, is, what do I have to do with a Ninevite? Like, I know we're thinking that. Um, but I just want to remind us of the words of Jesus. Jesus, when he victoriously rises from the dead and he commissions his people, his church, to go out into the world, um, I want you to notice that the, the mandate he gives them, the Great Commission, of which, by the way, we are all beneficiaries, okay? Um, Jesus told his disciples to, you know, the authority has been given to him, and he says, therefore, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and so each one of us are beneficiaries of Jesus' commission here. We have all come to faith in Jesus because of a disciple. Um, whom someone made a disciple. And you just kind of go through this long chain. Isn't that interesting? We're all connected to this long chain that goes back to Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. What a resilient faith, isn't it? Jesus said, I will build my church, and that's just a reason in and of, in, in of itself to believe in Jesus. Uh, because they say in China alone today, there's about a thousand souls being added to the church every hour. So you have great revival in that generation, right, where uh, the politics aren't great. And people are actually learning to lean on the Lord. 
And, and you have in our generation, you kind of have this opposite, this, this sort of negative effect where um, that chain link, it's not, it's not fighting as, as, as hard. You don't have enough Christians really living on mission. There's a lot, lot to this. But I want you to notice that this commission that we're beneficiaries of, uh, teaching them, he says, go out into all the world, his followers, make disciples, teach them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. That word observe is important because he's, he's saying, don't just tell them what I've said, but like walk with them and help them obey it and live it. That's the idea. He says, and lo, I am with you always. Notice this, even to the end of the age. That's a generational mandate. He's saying, this vision I have for what I'm going to do in your lives that I'm going to do through you, it's going to start. Now, this is what gives me hope, right? Because you look at a million people that dwindle down to zero people. But God brought the church throughout this centuries through 12 people. Because I'm going to take you 12. I'm going to empower you with my spirit. I sent my son Jesus into the world. Now I'm going to send you into the world with that message to make disciples, he says, to the end of the age, even till 2020, I'll be with you. A generational mandate. Here's the question that this whole idea that we've unpacked here this morning, here's what it leads us to ask. I want you to ask yourself, I want us to ask, my, I want to ask myself this question. I've been praying this. Um, what does it take? What will it take for one generation to fight for the spiritual heritage of the next. Since having kids, this has been on my mind more than ever. I used to think a lot about me and my walk with the Lord. Now I'm thinking about the implications of my walk with the Lord. I'm looking out at the world around me, and I'm like, what is the American context going to look like for Judah as a teenager following Jesus? What's that going to be like? Like, that was hard for me. I remember middle school, not because I choose to, you know? It's like, and we're talking like pre-Facebook, you know? Pre-Instagram, pre-selfie culture. What's it going to take? What's it going to take for another generation to rise up that actually knows God and what he did for Israel? What's it going to take for that graph to maybe start trending upwards? Can I submit to you these things? You can just write them all down at once. This is not a comprehensive list, but I think this is a great place to start as we look at our own lives and how Jesus has commissioned us to pass on this generational purpose. Uh, it's going to take personal inventory, number one. It's going to take what I'll call prophetic identity. It's going to take purposed intentionality, being intentional with a purpose that you have. It's going to take profound integrity. And it's going to require what we'll call prayerful intensity. This is what it will take for the legacy of faith in our generation to continue on to the next, for our children to know the Lord. It's going to require us in this generation to first um, do some personal inventory. Anybody ever work retail? Notice no one's like Anybody work retail at a mall? Looking at Brady and her sisters who all worked at the Quicksilver store at Sawgrass? Okay. Um, don't you love inventory? It's fun. Checking stocks, seeing what's there. That, that's the idea of inventory is you're, 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 you're evaluating and you're examining what's in stock, right? 
And, you know, Scripture calls us, I think this is step one if we're going to have any impact on the next generation. Scripture calls us, look at this verse in 2 Corinthians 13. It says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Notice this, test yourselves. One of the biggest uh, stumbling blocks to our walk with Jesus is our eyes are always on everyone else, never on ourselves. Like, you go to the doctor for an exam, right? Wouldn't it be healthy every now and then to get a spiritual exam? To examine yourself? To, have, to take some personal inventory? And, and by the way, one of the best ways to do this is to have other eyes on your life than just you. Because you have blind spots, and guess what? You don't see everything. So it's important to be in community and have people that can actually see what's going on in your life, that can, in love, speak the truth. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. But, but there needs to be this sense of evaluating. Listen, do I even care? Like, what are my priorities? What is it going to take for one generation to fight for the spiritual heritage of the next? Concern. Does it even matter to us? Have we gotten past seeing our neighbors as political enemies? Do we see them the way God sees them? Lost broken, in need of Jesus, not your politician, the gospel, the gospel of Jesus, Christ crucified for sinners. Does that matter to you or not? Personal inventory, what are your priorities? Have fun in politics. Have a blast. Get after it. See Instagram posts from last week for more theology about that. But don't ever let the mission Christ has given you take a back seat. We're commissioned for the kingdom of God. And we've got to take personal inventory and ask ourselves, man, do I even care? Do I care about the next generation? And, and maybe what's connected to this, I think a big point in this, ooh, this is a good reference for this, I've got to give this. Um, 2 Timothy 2, 4 says, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who listed him as a soldier. There's a danger here. And I'm, I'm you, obviously, here you go, I'm on, I'm on a soapbox, all right? I'm on it. I'm just going to keep standing on it, okay? All right? I'm not saying don't get involved in politics. I'm not saying don't get involved in fighting for justice. But again, we can get slowly but surely entangled into something that's not gospel ministry. The message of the gospel. I get that to preach the gospel, you got to call out what sin is. That's one of the biggest obstacles today. It's like, how do you say you, you, you need a savior if you're like, well, what have I done wrong? Everything's relative. So, well, that's tough. All right. So I get that there's, there's some weight there. But notice this call, evaluating yourself and your priorities. Are you entangled? Are you entangled in sin? Are you entangled in distractions? Take inventory and repent. That's the good news. Just, just go, God, I'm sorry. Anybody ever, anybody ever like felt, found the simplicity of that? That's so good, right? I'm sorry, Lord. It's like, it's okay. Come on. That's, that's how good God is. All right? But there's also, there's also this next step, which I think is also connected to this sense of uh, personal inventory. It's that second one. And this is also a big part of when we take inventory, we ask if I really care. Um, which, can I say this too? Like, um, this doesn't mean if you really care, you'll quit your job or something. Like, no, I mean using everything and anything that God has called you to for what he's commissioned you for. So it's using your, your workplace. It's using your time with your family for that ultimate purpose. Uh, another big root issue is potentially what we'll call prophetic identity. Uh, prophetic identity, 
probably could be understood best from uh, Jesus' dialogue with his disciples, where he asked them, who do men, flesh, humans, what do, what do man, what does man say that say about me? What do they think about me? What is my identity to them? And then Peter says, prophetically, by the Spirit, flesh and blood did not reveal it, but the Spirit of God, my Father who's in heaven. Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Ding, ding, ding. Right? Peter gets it right and then falls on his face in the next question. It's funny. But there's, there's two identities there. In every one of our lives, there's this war that we're facing to see ourselves according to who God says we are. I love that Bailey chose and Donna chose to play that song, Who You Say I Am. Because that's what we're talking about here. A lot of, a lot of us, the reason why um, we don't have a sense of missional activity is because we don't have a gospel identity. And, and I want to say this because your ident- who you are, like how you understand who you are, if you're just an American, that's your race and your gender and your job and all those things, of course there's going to be inactivity for the things of the kingdom. Because your identity shapes your activity. How you see yourself, how you understand who you are will shape what you're about in life. Like, there came a point for me where I was like, okay, I'm, I'm called to teach and preach the Bible. I'm called to do this activity because God just convinced me it's who I am. Like it's, now, what does that look like for you? I think a great example of this is 2 Corinthians, uh, where Paul says this. He says, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. He's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now look at what Paul says. Now then, we as, here's who we are, as ambassadors for Christ, we represent another kingdom, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. What's the activity? It's imploring people to come to know Jesus. It's imploring people to be reconciled to God. It's begging them, come know God. He's died for your sins. You can be forgiven. That activity, though, is fueled by an identity. He says, we're ambassadors. So so just bring this home, okay? Um, Let's start here. Dads, what's your identity? How How does God see you in your household? How do you see yourself? What's your identity as a father? As a husband. Okay. Can I tell you something? According to scripture. Prophetically. According to the Bible. You're more than a provider. You're not less than a provider. But you're more than a material provider. Scripture calls you a priest of your home. You're the priest of your home. Did you know that God sees you that way? That God sees you as the one over which he's put your family underneath as a covering. To lead them to be more than just educated and athletic, but to lead them to know the Lord. That's the ultimate target that parents are called to hit. So personal inventory, prophetic identity. Let's zip through these. Purposed intentionality. Um, purposed intentionality. Um, so, so there's got to be this inventory where I go, okay, fighting for the next generation requires me actually evaluating whether or not I want to fight and I care to fight whether or not I'm living for eternal things or temporary things. I've got to take inventory of whether or not the gospel has so transformed my life that it's sent me out to want to tell people about Jesus. Got to take inventory. I've got to, with that inventory, I've got to evaluate, God, who do you say that I am? That identity of what you call me is what should shape my activity. God, keep me from false identities. 
keep me from thinking things about myself that, that either aren't true or aren't ultimately true. They're not the truest thing about me, like what you say about me and who you've called me to be, like a missionary to my workplace would be an example. And then there's going to be this purpose intentionality where you go, and now that I know who I am in Christ, and now that I've reckoned in my heart to be concerned for the things of eternity, I'm not going to accidentally fight for the next generation. I'm not going to, to incidentally maybe share the gospel and, or have this like missional intentionality with my neighbors at the workplace. Uh, because like, I get that it's hard to do that, by the way. I, and I get that, like, what's probably not realistic is you standing up on your desk tomorrow in your cubicle and preaching the gospel. Like, I'll pray for you. If you want to do that, I'll lay hands on you and pray that God uses you to do that. Like, I'll get behind that, actually. All right? But, like, in this uh, cultural moment where most people have heard the gospel, if they see you do that, they're going to write you off right away and just be like, oh, I'm a crazy Christian, right? Uh, best way nowadays is probably to just have some intentionality. And try this out, ready? Like Jesus, he was the friend of sinners, so people who aren't like you, who don't go to church, have different belief systems, who make different choices than you, what if you didn't see them as a project to fix? But you just like, were like, I'm going to love them like God's loved me. I'm going to enter into friendship with them, and I'm going to, through our relationship, conversation's going to happen, and I'm going to find, by the power of the Spirit, the perfect point to be, I'm going to be intentional to share how Jesus saves them. The idols that they have trusted in. I mean, you just, listen, you just spend time with people long enough. Spend time with me. You'll see my failing idols. You know what I mean? Like, oh, that's the thing Andrew trusts in. And, and you're able to speak to me. Here's why Jesus is so much better than that, right? And that's what we're called to do. It's not like, I don't know that much theology. Do you know Jesus? Great. What has he done for you? Share that. So there's this intentionality. It's not incidental. It's not accidental. It's intentional. It's intentional. I love this scripture in Acts 19. It says this about Paul. It says when these things were accomplished, great ministry is happening through Paul. It says Paul, I love this, this reference here. Paul purposed in the spirit. I love that. He purposed in the spirit that when he passed through Macedonia and Achaia, he was going to go to Jerusalem. So, so Paul had this purpose. He was in the spirit. You know, I, I think what this um, kind of like convicts me of is a lot of times what I like to do is like wait for the opportunity on my couch or something, you know? <laughs> Lord, bring me an Amazon delivery guy, you know? It's like, ding, ding, oh! It's like, well, you ordered that book, you know? But like, or whatever else I've given to Jeff Bezos. But, um, you know, th there's this, this tendency to kind of like, and I'm not saying God doesn't accomplish divine appointments, but there's something about purposing in the spirit. There's something about like, um, not passively waiting for some golden opportunity but instead seeking out those divine appointments. Like just saying, God, as I wake up today, this is the day that you have made, and your word tells me that I'm your workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that you've prepared before me, and I'm gonna be intentional to walk in that. I'm gonna walk with you with this intent and this purpose in my spirit to walk in whatever that is. There's something about that heartbeat as you go about your day, and that's what it's going to require, okay? Um, and especially, especially, especially parents. You've got to be intentional about who your kids are becoming. You've got to be. You, like, like, you have to be. There's too much at stake for parents to leave the spiritual development of our kids in this cultural moment up to incidental circumstances. 
it won't sustain itself. Um, we have been commissioned to be purposeful to make disciples, and that starts at home. That starts at home. That starts with having this intent focus, saying, God, I know who you've called me to be, how you called me to shape my kids. That intentional parenting. Hey, let's uh, get to number five or four. How about this? Profound integrity. This is important. Profound integrity. Um, this, this, like these are, I'm not going to say one is more heavy than the others when it comes to the next generation. I just want to say this really, really matters to what this next generation believes about what we're saying. Like in my notes, I wrote integrity is integral. Like, I don't know how else to say it, but like it, it's so foundationally important. Um, integrity, we see this as a, as a theme. You know this, this idea, right? Proverbs 11 says, the integrity of the upright will guide them, but the perversity of the unfaithful will destroy them. Integrity, this word integrity, uh, we get the word integer from it, which means one, individual. Um, it's contrasted here with the word perverse. So the integrity of the upright and the perversity of the faithful. All throughout Proverbs, that's what you see as a contrast. You see people who are living lives of integrity or people who are living lives of perversity. The word perversity there doesn't mean like what we would think, like, oh, you're a pervert. It's not like that. Okay? The word perversity means falsehood, and it means corruption of what's true. That's what perversity means. Integrity is honest. Integrity is not perfection. Integrity is honesty. Integrity is wholeness. Integrity is when who you are in public matches who you are in private. Integrity is when your public reputation is consistent with your private character. It's godly character. It's wholeness. It's oneness. You're not this person here and then you're another person over there. You're, you're not duplicitous, right? Profound. Contrast of that is perversity and falsehood. And um, uh, you can't fake your, it to your kids, can you? You know? Especially now with Judah, like he he like he tells me when I'm blowing it now. It's like, it's like, Dad, aren't you a preacher? You know, it's like, oh my god. <laughs> or like, quote a Bible verse at me. It's the best thing ever, dude. It's the best thing. He's gonna be preaching next Sunday. Um, but there's just too much at stake for this, um, you, you know. And when when you think about integrity, you know, what I want you to think about. What do you think about a structure? Don't we use that word for structures? If something has structural integrity, the idea is that it's, it can support the weight. It's not just empty claims. I think so much of the world is, has, has walked away from what the, the message the church is preaching because they've closed their ears to their message and they're just watching. And like, what are they seeing in the church? I think for, in a lot of cases, the enemy has gotten these footholds where people look on at the church and they don't see integrity. They don't see something supportive. Here's a visual of this. Okay, so this is a treehouse I built um, with my brother-in-law, Roberto, about four years ago. And this is, I miss this treehouse so bad. It's in, my, it's in my old house. Um, the people that moved in made us take it down. Okay, so that was like the, I don't want to get into that. Okay, um, <laughs> not a lot of integrity in this whole story here. So I got to, but, but this, this uh, Roberto, who helped me uh, construct the thing, is a civil engineer. So that, I mean, I could have probably done it myself, but um, <laughs> but it helped a little bit. Like you know, there's like actually like calculus equations like on here in pencil. Um, but this is after a hurricane. Integrity. 
It's still, now, this is our new house and our new tree house, okay? Um, <laughs> this is basically an overgrown bonsai tree in our front yard, and we pray over it every day that it doesn't. Are you nervous seeing Penny up there? Look at her face. She's like, get me down. Um, we needed something. I, I don't know about the weight of this. Now, I want you to think about your own life and think about your, your faith. Think about what God's called you to and ask yourself, do I have integrity? Like, can, am I supporting the weight of my faith? Is my life going to be a stumbling block to the world around me? Or is the church of Jesus going to rise up and recognize the value of profound integrity? And I'll invite the band up to kind of close us out here in this moment. Um, we're not going to do a closing song. We'll just do a, uh, a, a send-off here. Um, thanks, Bailey. Um, but I want us to, to kind of finish with this thought of prayerful intensity. Um, because a lot of this can come down to, like, okay, I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to do And, like, certainly, like, you have to do things in a fight, you know. But scripture says that in the fight, 2 Corinthians 10, um, the weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal. In other words, there's this great burden that we should feel for the next generation, right? That's like, it's heavy. It's like you see the decline of faith. It's getting lonelier to follow Jesus. You see the world that our kids are going to be growing up in. Even if you don't have kids yet, even if you're not even married yet, you, you can see where it's headed. And there can be this weight of like, man, that's heavy. And that's a good feeling to feel, but it must be undergirded by this truth that at the end of the day, salvation is of the Lord. We're not here walking with Jesus because we fought hard enough for him to love us. Because we've been good enough to discover him. We're here because of a God who pursued us. Because of a God who loved us. Listen, God loves your kids more than you do. You know, my mom went to heaven 10 years ago and, and the greatest gift that God gave my mom before she went to heaven was seeing her prayers answered. Like as I just did everything <laughs> to fight the power of her prayers with my own life, there, there's a gift of that. There, there's a gift in that. There's a call that God says. He says, come to me. Look to me as the hope. There, there's a rest that happens there. Maybe you have a prodigal. And you, you're fighting, you're fighting, you're fighting. You need to remember that your fight is not in your flesh. We advance on our knees. We advance before God when we say, Lord, I don't have in and of myself the strength to fight for this next generation. God, I don't have the, the strength in and of myself. I, I know my coworkers, Andrew. You don't know them, okay? God knows them. God loves them. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in God. They're mighty in God. For pulling down strongholds. That's where we hang our hat. That's where we rest our head on the pillow at night, knowing that it's, it's the Lord. He's going to do it. He's going to do it. He's going to bring the revival. We don't bring revival. What we do is we position ourselves for revival. We say, God, bring it in my life. Bring it here first. And so the call here, if anything, man, it's for some greater, like, evaluate the, the intensity of your life, your spiritual life. How intense is it? I know we're like in the day and age where we don't want to be, stop being so intense, stop being so serious. But it's like, there's times to be intense. There's times to get right with God. There's times to stop playing games. 
There's times to repent if you've been entangled. There's times to look at in your own life the things that, that have been distracting you and, and have caused you to come out of the fight. And you look at those things and you go, God, I'm going to take this seriously. Time is too short. There's too much at stake for me to allow you to keep what you've done just to me. I know you have a greater plan for me. You want to use me. God wants to use us. God, there's people to reach. There's people to love. There's a generation to fight for. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.